Hello everyone, welcome to Lively Lead by Chang Radio, a weekly literature podcast airing every Sunday. I'm Ha Chang and this is my co-host, Kim. So last week we touched upon this a little bit in Chinatown Diptych and today we're going to go into the topic of labor in much more details. And my readings for today is actually excerpts from the novel Lullaby or The Perfect Nanny by Leila Slimani and translated into English by Sam Taylor. Uh, this is a novel that has won the Goncourt Prize for Literature in 2016 and has been praised by President Macron. I'm going to read excerpts from that and uh, we're going to go into the discussion. The baby is dead. It took only a few seconds. The doctor said he didn't suffer. The broken body, surrounded by toys, was put inside a gray bag, which they zipped shut. The little girl was still alive when the ambulance arrived. She fought like a wild animal. They found signs of a struggle, bits of skin under her soft fingernails. On the way to the hospital, she was agitated, her body shaken by convulsions, eyes bulging. She seemed to be gasping for air. Her throat was filled with blood. Her lungs had been punctured. Her head smashed violently against the blue chest of drawers. The mother was in a state of shock. That was what the paramedics said, what the police repeated, what the journalists wrote. When she went into the room where the children lay, she let out a scream, a scream from deep within, the hole of a she-wolf. It made the walls tremble. Night fell on this May day. She vomited and that was how the police found her, squatting in the bedroom, her clothes soiled, shuddering like a mad woman. She screamed her lungs out. The ambulance man nodded discreetly and they picked her up, even though she resisted and kicked out at them. They lifted her slowly to her feet and the young female trainee paramedic administered a tranquilizer. It was her first month on the job. They had to save the other one too, of course, with the same level of professionalism, without emotion. She didn't know how to die. She only knew how to give death. She had slashed both her wrists and stabbed the knife in her throat. She must have lost consciousness, lying next to the cot. They took her purse and blood pressure. They moved her onto the stretcher, and the young trainee applied pressure to the wound in her neck. Second extract. The children come out of the water and run, naked, into their mother's arms. Louise starts cleaning up the bathroom. She wipes the tub with a sponge and Miriam tells her, Don't bother. There's no need. It's late already. You can go home. You must have had a tough day. Louise pretends not to hear. Squatting down, she continues scrubbing the edge of the bath and tidying up the toys that the children have tossed around. Louise folds the towels. She empties the washing machine and makes the children's beds. She puts the sponge back in the kitchen cupboard and takes out a saucepan, which she puts on the hob. Helplessly, Miriam watches her work. She tries to reason with her. I'll do it, don't worry. She tries to take the saucepan from her, but Louise grips the handle tightly in her palm. Gently, she pushes Miriam away. Go and rest, she says. You must be tired. Enjoy your children. I'll make the supper. You won't even see me. And it's true. As the weeks pass, Louise becomes even better at being simultaneously invisible and indispensable. 
Miriam no longer calls to warn her that she's going to be late, and Mila no longer asks when Mama is coming home. Louis is there, single-handedly holding up this fragile edifice. Miriam lets herself be mothered. Every day she abandons more tasks to a grateful Louise. The nanny is like those figures at the back of a theater stage, who move the sets around in the darkness. She picks up a couch, pushes a cardboard column on the wall with one hand. Louise works in the wings, discreet and powerful. She is the one who controls the transparent walls, without which the magic cannot occur. She is Vishnu, the nurturing divinity, jealous and protective, the she-wolf at whose breast they drink. The infallible source of their family happiness. You look at her and you do not see her. Her presence is intimate but never familiar. She arrives earlier and earlier, leaves later and later. So, what do you think about this? Well, I have never actually read this novel, so、uh, a little bit of context of what you think、um, the novel is. So we know from the beginning that there's a murder. And the murderer is the nanny. She killed the two children. The story unfolds gradually that Miriam and Paul are two very successful couple in Paris. Paul is a musician and Miriam is a lawyer. And they jumped into marriage. They soon found out that having two children is too much, and Miriam hates staying at home. And so when she has an offer from a law firm, she decides that she wants to go out and. Joined the workforce again, and so comes the demand for a nanny to look after the two children. And Louise comes under the 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 scene. You know, at first the couples are a little bit uncomfortable about this, you know, immigrant and low class nanny. But Louise makes everything so perfect and so comfortable that she gradually makes a nest in their home. We gradually know about her past. You know, domestic violence. She has bills that she. Are not able to pay, and she has a daughter who she could not take care of, and she has to kind of give away. So she becomes more and more frustrated,、mm-hmm. and when she knows that Miriam and Paul has conceived the third child, but decides not to have it, she becomes, you know, very violent and dangerous. She gets more and more agitated, and eventually she killed off the two children. Yeah, it's haunting. It's interesting.、Hmm. Yeah, I think the there are two types of labor in here. I believe so. On the one hand, the pressure on women, working mom, is is very stressful, especially in big cities like Paris. Miriam could not handle it. Miriam loves her professional life. She loves her children too, but she cannot divide herself, divide her day into. Doing both things perfectly, so she has to hire a nanny for that. Yeah, and it's interesting that Paul, her husband, is a musician. Supposedly, the type of job that has less pressure on the working hour, essentially, than Miriam. But it is still a responsibility to take care of the children. Still falls onto Miriam.、Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that they seek another woman, a nanny, another motherly figure to take care of the children instead of Paul or. Yeah, someone else trying to take care of the kids. So, yeah,、um, kind of makes me remember the scene. I don't know if you watch Friends, the the sitcom. So Ross and Rachel has a child, and they has to seek for a nanny. And then Rachel ultimately finds out, 
a man who is nanny, and then all the guys in the friend group found it very disturbing. Like, why are you a man and you are doing the nanny's work? Are you gay or something? So it's kind of like it's a traditional concept that the responsibility of childcare is entirely women's.、Mm. Yeah, certainly. I don't know whether physically Louise can conceive again, but economically, like financially, she is incapable of having a child. It's just she won't be able to take care of it. A power of womanhood is to have a child. She rejected it despite having the capacity to take care of a child. I think for Louise, that is just such a direct attack upon Louise's own femininity that sent her into such、um, such a state. Yeah. So. I think there is this intense paradox that Louise has to face with. You know, on the one hand, she wants to have a child; she wants that childcare、um, job. But on the other hand, his it's becoming more and more taxing and tormenting on her because the idea that the children that she takes care of are not hers, and that one day they will cease to need her, and one day, you know, that attachment that she forms with them. They will easily forget, but she won't be able to. Thinking back for her childhood, like my parents are working parents as well. I remember being extremely, extremely attached to、um, the help lady. She was like my older sister, and when she left, it was quite traumatizing for me. But after, there's always another sister, and in a weird way, I felt like I developed. A much bigger dependency, and I see it with my nephews and nieces nowadays as well, because my brothers and sisters are all working parents. It's such an important connection for them. Children grows attached to the nannies. We often kind of mostly think of that relationship from how traumatic it is for the child, but we never actually consider how traumatic it is probably for for the adult as well. We kind of just assume that the nanny, yeah, she's leaving because she has her own life. Either she gets married or she finds a different job or something, but she's human as well. She took care of a baby from sort of like the little month when he was just born until two, three, four years old. Of course, you're gonna grow attached to the baby. Yeah, I think、um, childcare and housekeeping—it's always like a very tricky type of labor. And I think Slimani put it very well here that. This is the type of labor that it's simultaneously invisible and indispensable, and even for professionals like Louise, who goes into home and take care of it, clean it, cook, clean, take care of the children, the nature of those jobs is somehow considered to be so intrinsically natural in the sense that it is meant to be like this. That people often tend to look down on those jobs, thinking that they don't deserve to be paid that well because. They're just taking care of the house, whereas in reality, taking care of the house literally will take all days, will take up your full time. Not to mention taking care of the children. Yeah. So we have talked about labor in quite a traditional sense of it. Moving on to the poem of the day, which especially is read by Kim today. What do we have? What type of labor are you bringing into the table? Well, I am hesitant to call it intellectual labor. The relationship between art and labor is something I find really interesting.、Mm. I don't know if I can call creating art labor. Of course, it is laborious project, but I don't know. It's a, always a really strange relationship for me. But as always, I'm going to read a poem, and in true 
Kimmy's fashion is going to be extremely short <laughs> and easy to, to read out loud. I don't know about easy to read, read, but anyway, is Poet's Work by Lorene Niedecker. Poet's Work Grandfather advised me, learn a trade. I learn to sit at desk and condense. No layoff from this condensery. That's it. <laughs> if I were to choose a poem, of course it's going to be short. So, what do you think? I think it's witty. I think it's it's a very witty poem, mm. um, and it's really easy to understand too. Mm. And it's relatable to a lot of people, right? So we have this very traditional and maybe old-fashioned figure of the grandfather who gives an advice that I think. A lot of us is familiar with learn a trade. You know, you have to learn something that earns you money, right? My parents were like, "Well, you have to learn business that will earn you money. Why are you learning English? It's, it will. It's not a measure that will earn you, you know, any revenue in the future, right?" Specifically, I think it's interesting to look this poem up and look at it visually. The way it's structured looks like steps you know steps mm-hmm. of a ladder you start at the point of the grandfather and then go down and now it's like going down the rabbit hole yeah. like finding out what is it that they lead to the end of the word condensary um which is apparently the true nature the essence of poetry of making poetry is condensing word unlike prose poetry is very much a process of subtraction instead mm-hmm. of addition i always think with prose of course there's a lot of subtraction as well you need to be careful with picking your words but there's a lot of leeway there's a lot of space for you to write but in poetry there isn't it is an absolute process of subtraction in a sense that you picked out like condensed milk condensary condensed milk i think is a really intelligent word play but condensed milk is the sweetest and richest part of of milk of milk solids after all the water has been evaporated so i think it's such a witty image to compare with poetry but also you see the enjambment there's no end stop to this poem it's like even though it is poetry even though it's just as you said writing studying english is not gonna it's not a trade that makes a lot of money it's still the grind it's still like constantly constantly going and because it's actually because it's not a traditional type of like nine to five job it can go on and on and on for days. You always have to be working because you are your own boss. No layoff from this condensary. Like you don't have an employer paying you, so nobody's gonna fire you. Mm-hmm. But you also don't have a customer who's going to pay for your work, pay for your product as well. But this is there is this common belief that artistic creation is a very personal labor. Like you do it for yourself first, and that's when the value or the quality of the work is most cherished. So, or if you if you do something for the mass audience and if your work is consumed internationally, um, people won't see it highly. Yeah, it's it's a really really difficult question though. But I think you are never truly just writing for yourself. I think that is kind of a lie. Either we're so insecure about our own vulnerability or something about our work, our writing, that in order to protect that sliver of something in your work, 
you wrap it with a layer of protection of saying that this is just for myself and myself only. But as the poet myself who publishes my writing, not in books, but on um, Tumblr and on Instagram, I think that the process of writing out a poem is intensely personal. People might not see the labor, but there is hard work and there is a lot of thinking behind a poem. But when I publish it out, I don't expect people to understand my own story, understand the back of my story, but I expect people to somehow vibe with it, somehow understand the sentiment, somehow has their own story to fill in you know, the lines. I think that's the way most works are produced. You start with your own personal story, you start with your own personal observations, but you tell a story that a lot of people can understand or a sentiment that a lot of people share with. Certainly, certainly I completely agree with that. Just give me an interesting thought that, you know, Rupi Kaur, mm-hmm. um, her poem certainly has value in the sense that it vibes with a lot of people. It, it's simple sentences, simple stories that connects with a lot of people. What about labor? Do you see labor behind the process of creation of Rupi Kaur's poetry? That's where I find the most problem with Rupi Kaur's poetry, because I don't see effort and labor um, behind those lines. I think they're too easy. I think they're just like cliches and I think they're just like wise words, wisdom that are being cut into lines and they and those are poetry. And I understand that that is the reason why it vibes with a lot of people because, you know, it's wise words. Something like you should never give up. Hope is what drives you ahead in life. I don't see there's an effort to create art, to create imagery, to play with words. So I do not personally appreciate Rupi Kaur's poetry. See, I agree as well. I don't, well, because I can't write poetry to save my life though. So I've always kind of like, I think I've always kind of idolized that process a little bit. I don't know how true it is, but I think it is extremely difficult. There is a lot of labor. First, you expand from this sense, this sentiment, this feeling, and then you subtract into like these carefully cherished um, cherry-picked words. And I don't really see it with Ruby Carr's poetry as well. But then clearly, like we said, there's still value in it in terms of labor and value to people, especially if you consider, if you consider poetry, like we said, is a product to be traded, then clearly Ruby Carr's customer base deems that it has value and is willing to pay for it. So who are we to say that it has zero value if we're looking at poets as laborer, as a worker who's created this product, has the value that is that is deserved to be marketed and traded? I don't know. Yeah, this debate will surely comes down to the question of what is poetry? <laughs> and we have like a plethora of answers to that. And whether Rupi Kaur is a successful marketer or successful poet, that remains to be seen. I don't know about that. Yeah, the question definitely includes what is poetry, but the question more is what is poet's work? Is it a work or is artistry creating art something that is beyond work? I don't know. Like something that is considered beyond um, traditional labor doesn't everyone have different tools of the trade? Or maybe 
or maybe it's a question of each kind of work should be judged by different measures and standards that I don't know. But I never imagined myself from one day be saying a kind of kind of defending Rubka. I'm not really defending her work, but <laughs> I'm also kind of defending her. But like I said, in the sense that what is poet's work is still the same question. Right. So we have discussed two types of labor in today's episode. Um, one is kind of traditional labor. One is the so-called intellectual and artistic labor. But both of these two types of labor are ones I think much invisible to uh, the naked eyes. We want to spend an episode talking about this to really highlight that there is real labor behind these type of jobs. Our, I think our episode is coming to an end. Thank you all for listening and we look forward to seeing you next week, our final episode of this season one.